Stanford University. Hi, thank you all for coming today. Welcome to today's conversation, The Next Life of Newspapers, featuring Phil Taubman and Bill Keller of the New York Times. My name is Christian. I'm the current editor-in-chief and president of the Stanford Daily. Thank you very much for coming to today's event. Uh, I'd also like to welcome you all to uh, the dedication ceremonies overall. We're going to be following uh, this conversation with the building dedication at 4.30 p.m. Uh, the building is about a three or four minute walk from here, and we'll have more remarks there, as well as an open house and tour of the building. Uh, I'd like to go ahead now and introduce Phil Taubman, who will be uh, directing the conversation with Bill. Phil is a consulting professor at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, where he's working on a book project about nuclear affairs. He was also working on projects for University Affairs uh, as an Associate Vice President. Uh, before coming to Stanford in fall 2008, he worked at the New York Times as an editor and reporter for, over, for 30 years and specialized in national security issues. Uh, he also worked at the Times as a Washington correspondent, uh, Moscow bureau chief, deputy national editor, assistant editorial page editor, deputy editorial page editor, and Washington bureau chief. Uh, he is also a Stanford graduate and was a former editor-in-chief of the Stanford Daily. Uh, Phil was editor-in-chief in 1969 for volume 155. We're now in volume 235. And before joining the New York Times, he worked as a correspondent for Time Magazine and was a sports editor for Esquire. He's also the author of Secret Empire, Eisenhower, the CIA, and the Hidden Story of America's Space Espionage. And Phil is married to Felicity Berenger, another uh, Stanford grad and former editor-in-chief, who is a national environmental correspondent for the New York Times and is a class of 1971 graduate. Please welcome Phil Taubman. Thank you, uh, Christian. At least it's not presently volume 335. <laughs> it's great to be here today. A uh, lot of friends in the audience, people uh, who worked alongside me and Felicity at the Daily, uh, people we covered, including the former Stanford president, Richard Lyman, who's here today. Uh, so a lot of distinguished Daily alumni uh, are here many of whom began their careers as ink-stained scribes at the Daily, which I guess by saying that dates me. Uh, these days, I guess it's all done on computers. Uh, the month, months of April, I, this occurred to me the other day, months of April in years that end in, num in the number nine have a very nice ring. In 1939, in April 1939, Harry Press, who's here today, was managing editor of the Stanford Daily. In 1949, in April, Laurie Loquet was editor-in-chief of the Stanford Daily, Laurie whose generosity makes the new building possible. In April of 1969, I was editor-in-chief of the Stanford Daily. And in April of 1989, Bill Keller was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Soviet Union, including the catastrophic earthquake 
that struck Armenia in December 1988. Let me be the first today, and I know there'll be many <coughs> uh, who will join me in thanking Lori for his incredibly generous gift that uh, created the New Daly Building. And I also want to thank Bill, who's come a long way from the East Coast uh, to be here today uh, as the keynote speaker uh, at this auspicious occasion. Uh, Bill, as you know, is executive editor of the New York Times. He's been in that job since the summer of 2003. Bill's path to that position uh, began here in the Bay Area uh, he was born and raised in San Mateo County. In fact, is it correct that you were born at Stanford Hospital? Yes? Okay. So we can claim him even though he went to Pomona, <clears throat> where he's currently serving on the uh, Board of Trustees. Um, then Bill worked uh, for the Portland Oregonian for the uh, congressional quarterly uh, weekly publication for the Dallas Times Herald, uh, and then came to work at the New York Times in 1984 uh, as a domestic correspondent in the Washington Bureau. Briefly, if I'm not mistaken, Bill will correct me, covering the Pentagon? Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> Bill and I met in Moscow. Uh, well, I guess we'd met in Washington, but shortly after he started work in the Bureau, I peeled off to start trying to learn Russian. Uh, to prepare to go to Moscow, uh, and I was blessed uh, to find myself when I became bureau chief in Moscow in the fall of 1986 uh, to be joined by none other than Bill. And Bill and Felicity and I worked there together uh, for the following two plus years, uh, which were times of great historical moment in the Soviet Union uh, as Mikhail Gorbachev tried to re-engineer that society. Uh, and any of you uh, who have the time, I highly recommend that you dip into the New York Times archives and read some of Bill's coverage uh, from that period, as well as the time uh, that he was the bureau chief for the Times in Johannesburg. Bill set the gold standard for being a foreign correspondent in American journalism. Uh, and that's one of the reasons he won a Pulitzer Prize. Other jobs that uh, Bill has held at the New York Times, a list I think almost as long as the one that uh, Christian ran down for me, uh, were, uh, as uh, I said, Johannesburg bureau chief, foreign editor, managing editor, op-ed columnist, senior writer at the magazine, uh, and now, of course, as executive editor. And over the years, uh, I've had the good fortune to serve as Bill's boss in Moscow and on the editorial page, and to have Bill serve as my boss when I was Washington bureau chief and in my final job at the Times before I retired last year as an associate editor. Either way, I can't think of a more gifted colleague or a better friend. During these challenging days in the newspaper business, the Times is lucky to have Bill at the helm. He comes to work every day determined to produce the best news report in the world. 
He's helped fashion the best newspaper website in the world. And he's been tenacious in fighting to maintain a robust newsroom at a time when nearly every other news organization in the United States has been cutting back their newsrooms. In that fight, fortunately, he's supported by a publisher, Arthur Sulzberger, who also believes that good, robust journalism is indispensable to the health of American democracy. So Bill will speak for a bit. The title of his talk is The Next Life of Newspapers. Uh, then I'll throw some questions his way, and then we'll open up uh, for questions from all of you. Uh, as I say, the title of his talk is The Next Life of Newspapers. Uh, like many of you, I fervently hope there is one. Over to you, Bill. Thank you, Phil. If you have to choose between having me for a boss or Phil for a boss, um, I'd go with Phil every time. <laughs> um, thank you all for inviting me to be here today. I have a lifelong and somewhat ambivalent relationship with Stanford. As Phil noted, I was born here in the University Hospital, and I grew up in San Mateo, a few miles up the peninsula. Uh, my father was for many years on the board of SRI International, which began as the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, Dad died last year in Stanford Hospital. Forty-some um, years ago, when I graduated from high school, I applied to Stanford. Uh, I did not get the thick envelope, uh, which is probably just as well, because if I had gone to school this close to home, I probably never would have learned how to do my own laundry. <clears throat> um, Anyway, it's an honor to be here to help celebrate Stanford's commitment to one of the nation's finest campus newspapers. Uh, some of you may wonder about the wisdom of investing in journalism at a time when newspapers are going bankrupt. Some of you may even think this event feels a little like a ribbon cutting at a new Pontiac dealership. <coughs> um, <coughs> and those of you who have signed on to work for the Daily or who are contemplating careers in journalism may be wondering, what the hell am I getting myself into? I'm hoping I can ease your fears today at least a little. Uh, within the last year, it seems to me, there's been a palpable shift in the national conversation about newspapers. For most of my 40 years in this business, and especially for the 25 years I've spent at the New York Times, the loudest voices were always the angriest voices. To those out there on the ferocious right, we were Bolsheviks and heathens. Uh, to those out on the left, we were warmongers and corporate stooges. Uh, liberals have tended, tended to criticize us uh, with a kind of earnest disappointment. Conservatives tend to do so with gleeful outrage. Uh, in 2007, when we cut the size of the Times to save money on newsprint, the joke that went around the conservative blogosphere was, one and a half inches down, 12 inches to go. <clears throat> uh, especially in recent years, as a clamorous new species of critic has been enabled by the miracle of the internet, We've become the favorite chew toy of various hyperventilating advocates, conspiracy theorists, and snarkoleptics. Uh, and of course, for the utopians of the web, we are the loathed mainstream media, dinosaur monopolies just waiting for the meteor strike to render us extinct. Uh, I'm the first to admit that some of this disappointment has been justified. 
Newspapers are written and edited by humans. We can be smug, we can be tone deaf. We certainly get things wrong. Uh, the history of our craft is tarnished down the centuries by episodes of partisanship and gullibility and blind ignorance on the part of major news organizations. My own paper managed to pretty much overlook the Holocaust as it was happening. But it's also true that you know about our shortcomings in large part because we tell you about them. It's part of our creed that we try to own up to our mistakes, from the petty to the egregious, and fix them. For connoisseurs of penitence, the Times correction column is an endless source of entertainment. On a good day, you run across something like this. Quote, the personal health column on December 2nd about detecting and treating esophageal cancer misstated the size of the gastrointestinal endoscope, the instrument used in the traditional screening test for the disease. It is usually nine millimeters in diameter, about one third of an inch, not, quote, the diameter of a garden hose. <laughs> <laughs> or there's this one which Greg Brock, who handles our corrections, offers as his all-time favorite. It comes from uh, the paper of October 2000, quote, an article in the Times Magazine last Sunday about Ivana Trump and her spending habits misstated the number of bras she buys. <clears throat> it is two dozen black, two dozen beige, and two dozen white, not 2,000 of each. <laughs> <clears throat> and there's no statute of limitations on contrition. Last month, we published a correction of an article about the engraving inside Abraham Lincoln's watch. The original article appeared in 1906. Uh, at the other end of the culpability scale, I've had a few occasions to write mea culpas for my paper after we let down our readers in more important ways, including for some reporting before the war in Iraq that should have dug deeper and been more skeptical about Iraq's purported weapons of mass destruction. It's not fun to take yourself to the woodshed, but it is essential to our credibility, and it's not something that all institutions do. Come to think of it, we're still waiting for the Bush administration's mea culpa on those weapons of mass destruction. Uh, there are still voices out there clamoring for our demise. Uh, I have one regular correspondent who emails me every time our stock price goes down, which is almost every week, uh, to uh, remind me how much he looks forward to dancing on our grave. The messages usually begin with the salutation, Bill, you treasonous prick. <clears throat> <clears throat> Um, but while the vitriol has not dried up entirely, more often these days we hear from people who want to come to our rescue. The critics have begun to contemplate what a country without the New York Times might actually be like. Publications that in better times see it as part of their mission to tweak the mighty times, places like New York Magazine and Vanity Fair and the New York Observer and the Columbia Journalism Review, have begun commending us for the dazzling inventiveness of our website or for the courage and stamina of our Baghdad Bureau or for our prescient coverage of the current economic crisis. In the New Republic a couple of weeks ago, Paul Starr of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson Center worried that the decline of newspapers would bring a corresponding de decline of democracy. More than any other medium, he wrote, newspapers have been our eyes on the state, our check on private abuses, our civic alarm systems. It is true that they have often failed to perform these functions as well as they should have done, but whether they can perform them at all is now in doubt. Some of us have recently taken turns fielding questions from Times readers online in a feature we call Talk to the Newsroom, and we've been surprised that by far the most popular subject these days is not bias or anonymous sources or the Middle East, but the fate of our own business. 
Readers have implored us to find a way to charge for our content on the web. Some asked if they could send us money. I wonder if the executives at General Motors get mail like that. <laughs> saving the New York Times now ranks up there with saving Darfur as a high-minded cause. Walter Isaacson, the editor, author, and think tank guru, commanded the cover of Time Magazine with a call for newspapers to begin charging their web users. Steve Brill, the publisher and entrepreneur, has produced an elaborate proposal for reinventing the newspaper business model. Recently, a couple of financial officers from Yale proposed on my paper's op-ed page that civic-minded philanthropists establish a New York Times endowment to sustain us into the future. They estimated that about $5 billion would do it. Uh, a writer in The Nation magazine has proposed a government bailout and a system of tax subsidies to keep newspapers alive. I don't honestly expect that the survival of my newspaper or most other newspapers lies in the hands of kindly philanthropists or the US Congress, but I welcome the constructive attention. It makes a nice change from being called a treasonous prick. Uh, I've been invited here to muse a bit about the recent past and the unnerving future of our business. Editors, as you know, are responsible for the contents of the Times, not its business model. This is the only business I can think of where the people who make the product are tr uh, have traditionally been kept apart from the people who sell the product. That's to protect journalists from the undue influence of advertisers and perhaps to protect sober company executives from the corrupting influence of journalists. For most of my life, that division of labor has been fine with me. My job and my joy is telling other people's stories. And at the moment, it's a wonderful time to be in the news business if you don't think too much about the news business. But like everyone else who labors in journalism or who just loves it, I worry about our future. I discuss it constantly with colleagues, and I cringe at the amount of really bad journalism that has been produced on the subject of the future of journalism. Throughout the tumult of the past few years, I've been a calculated optimist about newspapers. My faith has been severely tested, but I still believe that newspapers in some form will survive and flourish, and that my own newspaper will be one of those left standing after the deluge. For years, I've based my faith on the simple law of supply and demand. There is a diminishing supply of quality journalism and a growing demand, and in economics, that usually means there is money to be made. By quality journalism, I mean the kind that involves experienced reporters going places, bearing witness, digging into records, developing sources, checking and double-checking, backed by editors who try to enforce high standards. I mean journalism that, however imperfect, labors hard to be trustworthy and fair, to supply you with the information you know you, you need to be an informed and engaged citizen. The supply of this kind of journalism is declining because it is hard, expensive, sometimes dangerous work. The traditional practitioners of this craft mainly newspapers, have been downsizing, dumbing down, or declaring bankruptcy. It's tempting to blame the internet, and I'll get around to that, uh, but much of what is happening to newspapers is the continuation of a long trend. When I left the staff of the Oregonian in 1979, Portland had two daily newspapers. Three years later, the Newhouse chain closed the afternoon paper, the Oregon Journal. When I left the staff of the Dallas Times-Herald in 1984, it was one of two good newspapers jostling for primacy in that city. In 1991, the Belo Corporation, the owner of the rival Dallas Morning News, bought the Times-Herald for $55 million and shut it down the next day. The fact is, newspapers are extremely expensive to start up and sustain because of the costly infrastructure, 
So there is a natural tendency towards monopoly. It's no surprise that the cities that have had newspapers die off or scale back in recent months, Denver, Seattle, Detroit, and others, have been two newspaper cities where the papers have been kept barely alive by joint operating agreements. Their demise is sad, but it's been a long time coming. Also not particularly new is the fact that proprietors of the only newspaper in town, once they have a monopoly, feel freer to cut costs in a quest for fatter profits. They've done that by whittling away at the kind of coverage that is expensive to do and in their patronizing view is not alluring to young readers or advertisers, things like foreign bureaus, the coverage of state and national government, and investigative reporting. These trends have been accelerated by the recession, of course. Newspapers that have lost the loyalty of readers by making themselves more and more dispensable are hemorrhaging circulation. Advertisers who provide the bulk of newspaper revenues have hunkered down for hard times, cutting off the cash flow that newspapers need to meet their payrolls and to service their large debt burdens. That would all be true even if the internet had not siphoned off the lucrative classified advertising business. So now with the two newspaper town something of a relic, we are moving towards the no newspaper town. Last week, the only daily newspapers in four Michigan cities, Flint, Saginaw, Ann Arbor, and Bay City, announced that they would cut back to two or three issues a week. The surviving newspapers in several major cities, including the paper I grew up on, the San Francisco Chronicle, are on the endangered list. And everyone is retrenching. The Washington Post last week announced its fourth round of buyouts in six years. The Los Angeles Times newsroom staff is now half of what it was at its peak, and the company that owns it has filed for bankruptcy. My paper and our most aggressive competitor, the Wall Street Journal, have avoided the kind of newsroom cutbacks that dull your competitive edge, but we've both done some trimming and belt tightening too. Last week, I asked my staff to take a 5% pay cut for the remainder of this year. Other outlets that once aspired to provide serious journalism are also abdicating. In February, the editor of Newsweek announced that his magazine was getting out of the news reporting business to focus on commentary and features. I don't know what they're going to do about the awkwardness of the magazine's title. Uh, no Newsweek doesn't trip off the tongue. <clears throat> um, Time magazine seems to be drifting in the same direction. Uh, cable TV news operations have mostly turned themselves into shout fests. Fox on the right, MSNBC on the left. At CNN, it's increasingly hard to recall that the initials stand for cable news network. Instead of reporters in the field, you have juries of commentators lined up in front of laptops on hyper hyperactive sets that look like parodies of the Daily Show's parody of a TV news set. <laughs> As the actual substance of journalism has waned, they've piled on the tropes of journalism. Breaking news, working the story, exclusive. I watch the CNN morning show at the gym, and their latest thing is to run video clips from viewers who sit in front of a webcam and talk about how angry they are. And guess what they call these video contributors? Eye reporters. <clears throat> By that standard, if, if you stumble into an emergency room pointing to a gash in your head, you're entitled to be called an eye doctor. <clears throat> <clears throat> Some friends of mine uh, looking for alternative suppliers of good journalism have turned to the British press. The BBC has a growing American audience on cable and on the web. London's Guardian has a fine website. Uh, I'm a particular admirer of The Economist, which now has 60% of its circulation in North America. And these are all healthy supplements to a serious news diet, although they're no replacement for American newspapers when it comes to covering this country, or for that matter, this country's global interests. 
To cover the whole of American news, The Guardian has seven reporters, and The Economist nine, not counting stringers. Which brings us to the internet. The internet has had at least three profound effects on the newspaper business. First, it siphoned off the classified ad revenue that for many major dailies used to be 40% of their income. Craigslist, started by the Bay Area's own Craig Newmark, who I'm proud to say is a devoted New York Times print subscriber. Uh, Craigslist made it possible for you to sell a car, rent an apartment, or find a job without paying for those little lines of agate type. This, of course, hastened the decline of newspaper profits. Second, the internet broke down the barriers to entry that had protected the newspaper business as essentially monopolistic. That old joke, the freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns one, is now inoperative. Freedom of the press now belongs to anyone with an internet service provider. And third, the internet made newspapers free. Now, news has long been free on radio and television, and subscribers have never paid the full cost of newspapers in print. Newspapers have generally been a bargain underwritten by advertising. But now there's an expectation, in some quarters, an ideology, that what we do comes to you free of charge. While a few companies have successfully challenged that assumption, notably the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, it's a serious barrier for those who want to build a new business model. So far, and I want to emphasize so far, for all the wonders that have originated on the internet, and there are many, this medium has yet to become a significant indigenous source of the kind of journalism I've been describing. The web offers countless voices riffing on the journalism of others, but not so many that do serious reporting of their own, except, of course, the online outlets of mainstream media. Wikipedia and Google have become two of the most heavily trafficked news sites. They draw huge audiences when news breaks, but they don't have reporters in Baghdad or Washington or anywhere else for that matter. Wikipedia's policy actually forbids original material. It's a great mashup of secondary sources. Wikipedia and Google aggregate information from guess whom? From the New York Times, from The Guardian, from the Associated Press, and from a lot of less dependable sources. They can pool reporting from hundreds of news outlets, but what if there aren't hundreds of news outlets? Or what if many of them are simply unreliable? And how would you know? Here's an experiment you can perform at home. If you're inclined to trust Google as your source for news, Google yourself. And by the way, <clears throat> uh, while we like the fact that these aggregators uh, and the opinion-based sites like Huffington Post and the Drudge Report drive a lot of traffic to our own website, we wince a little at the idea that they're also making money off of us by posting long excerpts of our work. I'll leave it to a lawyer to say whether that constitutes piracy, but it's certainly freeloading. There are few serious online news ventures that have attracted a significant following and earned respect. Uh, Politico, Talking Points Memo, the Documents Archive Smoking Gun, the International Freelance Network Global Post, and several high-quality sources for technology news, to cite a few examples. There are local startups like the nonprofit MinPost in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and PasadenaNow.com, which notoriously proposed to outsource coverage of the Pasadena City Council to journalists in India. <laughs> <coughs> That's a true story. Um, there are bloggers, uh, citizen journalists as some call them, uh, who post first-hand information from a lot of places. But few of these ventures can afford to pay a reporter to watch the long slog of a state legislative session 
or to carry out the months of digging that may go into a major investigation. Few can afford the cost of travel to far off places or the lawyers to file Freedom of Information Act suits and defend against litigious subjects or the security and insurance you need to work in a war zone. They mostly live hand to mouth. The best and most successful online sources of news are still the spawn of mainstream media, especially newspapers. Journalism, as we have learned, is enriched by the possibilities of the web, engaging the audience, opening our doors to information and comment from all quarters, subjecting what we have gathered to the wisdom, or at least the kibitzing, of the crowd. At our website, as at many others, we regularly invite groups of experts to debate. We have compiled interesting data, most recently on immigration, and submitted it to our readers to study even before we wrote our articles. We've posted stories about Russia in Russian on Russian blog sites, and then harvested the reaction, giving our readers a better window into the Russian soul than you will ever get by gazing into the eyes of Vladimir Putin. <clears throat> that stuff is all great, it's just not enough. And as Paul Starr points out, online, quote, there are few clear markers to distinguish blogs and other sites that are being financed to promote a viewpoint from news sites operated independently on the basis of professional rules of reporting. So the danger in the disappearance of newspapers, he says, is not just more corruption of government and business, it is also more corruption of journalism itself. If you want an idea of what that might look like, you can go back a few centuries to the infancy of American newspapers. In the first century and a half of American newspapers, let's say from the short-lived public occurrences of 1690 until the launch of Horace Greeley's New York Tribune in 1841, newspapers were a little like the untamed blogosphere short on impartial reporting and dispassionate analysis, long on incendiary opinion, special pleading, and defamatory gossip. Early American newspapers eventually matured, and startup journalism on the web will too. And this time, it won't take 150 years. You can already see it happening, hastened by the proliferation of communities that no longer have newspapers and journalists who no longer have jobs. I can imagine how this plays out. A few hardy souls with the curiosity and industry of the best journalists, maybe students fresh from the Stanford Daily, or maybe out-of-work newspaper reporters who don't mind living a little closer to the poverty line. These, these journalists will fan out into the world, living and working on the cheap, and file their dispatches on the web. Some of them will emerge from the clamor of opinion and gossip to find an audience and develop a reputation. Some will find sponsors or benefactors to defray the costs of traveling to far-off places and doing deep investigative re reporting. Some of them will join forces to pool information and resources to build the kind of institutional safeguards needed to defend against government oppression and intimidation, to set collective standards to earn public trust. For those of you just starting out, determined to make a life in journalism and fortified with a bit of pioneer spirit, this is one alternative scenario. So just to be clear, my argument for the future of newspapers is not that we have a monopoly on the skills. It is not that the web will never produce good, indigenous, expert journalism. Inevitably, it will. Eventually, the internet will supply what we lost so much of with the demise of the two newspaper city, competition. But right now, the supply of quality journalism is still shriveling. Now about demand. <clears throat> I probably don't need to persuade this audience that trustworthy, wide-ranging journalism is vital to good citizenship, to global business, to an engaged life. 
Otherwise, what would you be doing in here on a beautiful spring day? But if you doubt that there is a demand, a market for good journalism, consider this. My paper last year generated more than $600 million in print circulation revenue. That's people paying good money for good journalism. And those revenues, by the way, are going up. If you doubt that this demand is transferable to the web, just look at the traffic flooding into the best newspaper websites. The audience is immense. Nielsen Media Research says that at the New York Times, we have nearly 20 million unique monthly visitors and over 700 million page views. And those numbers exclude the booming international audience. Now, a lot of these visitors arrive by way of search engines. They were not looking for the New York Times. They were looking for a discrete piece of information. So it's reasonable to ask whether the hunger for information is the same as demand for newspapers. Some serious students of this subject contend that newspapers are obsolete, not just as a physical artifact, ink on dead trees, but as a way of organizing information. In an a la carte information world, this theory goes, people won't let someone else organize their news menu for them. If that is so, centralized news sources will be disaggregated, fragmented into their component parts, and consumers will, in effect, assemble their own briefing books from here and there. Or information will be aggregated automatically. An algorithm that knows your interests will pluck news from the air for you. Maybe. Maybe. But I suspect that that's a misreading of human nature. To be sure, there will always be autodidacts and obsessives willing to spend their time roaming the web and comparison shopping the information mall. There will also be some people, sadly, who are happy to get their entire news diet from partisan sites that simply confirm their own prejudices, or from social networks that may or may not expose them to surprising things. But I think there are many, many people who will find those options are either inefficient or unsatisfying. I think one reason some newspapers will survive, whether on paper or not, is precisely because people want someone they can trust to do the hard work of surveying the world, harvesting the most important news, truth testing it, applying context and skepticism, making sense of it, and presenting it in an agreeable format. Moreover, I think most intelligent, curious people value the serendipity of encountering information they would never have thought to ask for and the intellectual enrichment of confronting views that challenge their own. So when I say there is a demand for what we do, I mean in large part, I believe there is a demand for our independent judgment of what you need to know. At the times we've taken to describing our online function as curating the web or smart aggregation. That means presenting not only the journalistic craftsmanship and expertise of our own reporters, but navigating the best of everything else including the contributions of our own audience. The old-fashioned word for this is editing. Call it what you like. We're pretty good at it. By the way, when Rupert Murdoch talks about his Wall Street Journal challenging the New York Times, it's precisely this curatorial role that he hopes to usurp. He wants to go beyond being a purveyor of business news to business readers and become, as the Times is, a place you trust to canvas the world for you. Mr. Murdoch and the New York Times don't always agree, to put it mildly, but we apparently agree that the value of journalism and the demand for it lies not just in its individual revelations, but in its role as a proxy for an intelligent reader. So to sum up, the supply of good journalism is waning and the demand is growing. Clearly, the existential question for newspapers is, how do we make sure that the demand 
continues to pay for the supply. I can only speak from the vantage point of one newspaper, and it's a newspaper with some advantages. We have a loyal audience, a distinguished brand, a staff that has not been gutted during the panics of recent years, and a family of owners who believe in what we do. I try to be a little humble about advising editors who do not enjoy my advantages. Our first task, obviously, is to weather the recession. By that, I do not just mean keeping the company alive, but keeping it competitive, delivering the, status, uh, the, delivering the supply of news that discriminating readers expect of us. This is not the same thing as clinging desperately to the status quo. We're likely to face more wrenching changes in the years ahead, and we should embrace them. But neither should weathering the recession mean throwing essentials overboard in a panic. Whatever the future of journalism holds, we're unlikely to invent it without journalists. The law of supply and demand is cause for optimism, but it is not in itself an answer. As Clay Shirky, an NYU professor who follows the plight of newspapers, wrote recently, you're going to miss us when we're gone has never been much of a business model. <laughs> <laughs> the cost cutting buys us a little time, perhaps a year or two, but we have to use that time to rethink the business. At my paper, we are rethinking with a vengeance. Our search for the future entails two parallel investigations. One is a study of the circumstances beyond our control. In this exercise, we're constructing a range of possible scenarios. The most optimistic would be a rebound of printed newspapers, like the rebounds that occurred after the advent of radio or television. The most apocalyptic is the fragmentation of news media into a lot of component parts, each part struggling for a share of a market niche. The main point of this exercise is not to predict the future with precision, but to identify signposts along the way that will tell us in time which way events seem to be heading. When the advertising comes back from this long and miserable recession, where will it go? How much to print? How much to the web? Will advertisers pay to be associated with a lustrous brand like the Times, or will they prefer to spray their message to voluminous audiences? Will loyal print readers continue in their loyalty? For how long? How much will they pay? Are consumers showing a greater willingness to pay for content online? The second related... In <clears throat> um, I think we have a time period built in for heckling, uh, and it comes in just a couple of minutes. <clears throat> the second related investigation is a study of our options, and it is as intense, unflinching, and wide-ranging a study as anyone could want. Everything is on the table. New print products, new digital products, new advertising strategies, the role of portable devices from iPhones and Blackberries to e-readers and digital paper. We're looking, of course, at ways to extract payments from the consumers of our news, micropayments, subscriptions, memberships, even voluntary donations. We're looking at the opportunities that might be opening up in all those cities that no longer have a newspaper. Should we customize part of our website to provide local coverage in those communities? In the coming months, I fully expect that the New York Times will begin laying down some bets based on our best forecasts of how the relationship between journalists and their audience will evolve. There's no end of faith-based polemics on the subject of newspaper survival. Print is dead. Online readers must pay for content. Online readers will never pay for content. We should be a little suspicious of ironclad certainty. The fact is, we don't really know yet how the behavior of readers and advertisers will evolve, 
We don't really know how to separate the consequences of a calamitous economic crisis from the enduring changes in behavior provoked by new technologies. I think in the next year or so, we must examine all our options with an open mind, test those that are testable, and make some hard choices. Perhaps it reflects a lack of imag imagination on my part, but my best guess is that there will be no big bang, no magic bullet, no commercial deus ex machina. The remaking of newspapers will come in stages, and it will involve some trial and error. I'm often asked how often the Times will go all digital. Personally, I believe the printed New York Times, that old-fashioned bundle of ink and cellulose, has a lot of life left in it. As the Times design director, Tom Bodkin, likes to say, print is portable, shareable, and disposable, which means you don't have a heart attack if you suddenly realize you left it on the subway. It is recyclable, convenient, and durable, which means it won't break if you fold it and put it in your coat pocket. And it has an elusive quality that Tom calls thingness, a weight and substance and tactile presence. We sell about a million copies a day, and included in that number is a large pool of loyal subscribers who stick with us through controversy and price increases. Even if we fail to grow a new young audience of print newspaper readers, our median print reader is still under 50. I expect those people will tide us over until the digital revenues rise enough to keep us afloat. The printed newspaper may eventually become a cult product like vinyl LP records, uh, or it may disappear altogether. I don't know, but I think we're some years from that day. One way or another, though, we need to make our journalism pay better online. Our online display advertising revenue is substantial and growing, though not as fast as it was before the recession. We hope and expect that growth to pick up when businesses crawl out of their recession bunkers. Beyond that, we're closely studying the experience of others who have set up pay turnstiles at their websites, and we are recalling the lessons of our own time select experiment where we charge for access to our marquee columnists. The best known paid news websites are the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, which have some advantages in the paid content world. The Journal and the FT sell specialized business information to consumers who need specialized business information to make a living. We assume many of those readers put the subscription cost on their expense accounts. Moreover, it's one thing to inherit a, pay, a paid website and continue to charge money, as Rupert Murdoch did when he bought the Wall Street Journal. It's another thing to start demanding payment for a website users have come to think of as free. And there's always a concern that charging for content will reduce traffic and diminish advertising revenues. That matters. I'm pretty sure that if the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal websites opened their books, you'd learn that we make considerably more money with our advertising model than they make with their subscription model. I'm not saying that we won't find a paid model that works for us. I'm just saying it's more complicated than it looks at first blush. And the same is true of the various proposals for voluntary contributions to our well-being. In my view, we should give serious study to anything that holds promise, but there are serious downsides to a not-for-profit model. For one thing, charity, however well-intentioned, sometimes comes with strings attached. For another, endowments are no insulation against economic hard times. Just ask Stanford University. Uh, and marketplace competition is mostly good for journalism. It's true that the scramble for readers' attention may contribute to tabloid sensationalism and press pack feeding frenzies, but it also serves as a goad to aggressive reporting. I'm not saying I'd turn down a $5 billion endowment. Uh, at the moment, my position on that subject is entirely academic. 
When it comes to online journalism, my confidence in the future has less to do with the allure of any grand solution than with the versatility of the people in my own company. To be sure, the newspaper industry's initial response to the internet was usually defensive, sometimes complacent, often unimaginative. Some companies threw themselves protectively into the online classified business, but pretty much ignored the threat slash opportunity that the internet created in journalism. Their websites for years had the look, feel, and timeliness of daily newspapers. Other newspapers created small online newsrooms with license to experiment, but locked them in the attic so that they would not pervert the real journalists. Or maybe it was just so the old farts wouldn't cramp their style, I don't know. Either way, that was a mistake because the people who bring you high quality newspapers turn out to be surprisingly adaptable and entrepreneurial when called upon, and the people who understand digital are enthusiastic, inventive partners. Newspapers, including my own, have periodically reinvented themselves, adding features, revising formats, redefining markets. At the moment, we're demonstrating a good deal of agility in tapping the potential of web journalism. Four years ago at the Times, we began merging the staff of our website, mostly young, mostly not raised in the church of mainstream journalism, into the newsroom of aging, technologically challenged hacks like myself. The collaboration of high journalistic standards and engineering proficiency has produced quite an explosion of creative energy. Journalists who are anxious about the wrenching changes ahead should take some comfort from the wrenching changes we have already embraced. At the New York Times, we are now doing things that would have seemed inconceivable 10 years ago and improbable five years ago. We break news constantly through the day, something that we used to dismiss as the work of wire services. We assemble topics pages, essentially living archives, that once felt more like the work of librarians. <clears throat> we invite our readers to our website and we engage them, which is a cultural sea change, for, sea change for an institution that used to deliver the news from a lofty height. Today we live blog congressional hearings and Final Four basketball games in real time. We fact check debates as they are underway. We embed live video feeds in our homepage. We do interactive interactive graphics that are the envy of every other news site. Even in times like these when anxiety is large and budgets are tight, we keep launching new things. This week it's a college admissions blog run by a first-rate correspondent, Jack Steinberg, who wrote a best-selling book on the subject. If you have a kid heading for college, or if you are a kid heading for college, this promises to be an indispensable resource. A few weeks ago we began two hyper-local sites one in Brooklyn, one in New Jersey, to test the market and the creative possibilities for local online journalism. We do these things well, and so far we've managed to do them without neglecting the care, reflection, and craftsmanship people have always expected from the Times. Where does this end? Earlier I quoted an NYU professor named Clay Shirky who writes about this subject with considerable common sense, although he's much more pessimistic than I am about newspapers. <clears throat> And his analogy for the disruptive power of the web is the Gutenberg printing press invented in the 15th century. Gutenberg's press is credited with being an important factor in the spread of literacy that produced the Renaissance. And there are many erudite studies of what the world was like before and after Gutenberg. But in the years immediately after the invention, Shirky points out, there was chaos. All the accepted philosophers, faiths, and historical accounts were open to challenge, and nobody quite knew whom to trust. It was a mess. As novelty spread, Shirky writes, 
Old institutions seemed, seemed exhausted, while new ones seemed untrustworthy. As a result, people almost literally didn't know what to think. This is what real revolutions are like. The old stuff gets broken faster than the new stuff is put in its place. So how will these things work when the internet finishes shaking our world? Sharkey's reply is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Now is the time for experiments, lots of experiments, each of which will seem as minor at launch as Craigslist did or as Wikipedia did. For the next few decades, journalism will be made up of overlapping special cases. No one experiment is going to replace what we are now losing with the demise of news on paper. But over time, the collection of new experiments that do work might give us the journalism we need. On that uncomfortable truth, I agree. Nobody wishes more than I that we could have a clear map of the future with a pot of gold at the end. What we have going for us instead is a crying need, a shrinking supply, and the creative energy of some of the smartest people in journalism. That's enough for me. And if it's not enough for you, and you're a student embarking on a journalistic career, I hope I've caught you in time to change majors. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Microphones in the aisles. I just uh, have one question for Bill, and then we'll open it to the floor. Um, my question, since we're at a university and we're here to uh, mark a big moment for the student newspaper, is uh, for many years, people would come and ask me or you or our colleagues, what do you do to get into the journalism business? And there were a series of fairly predictable answers that we gave uh, and pathways that you could take into the profession. Many of those no longer seem to be viable. So my question is, if you're a staff member on the Stanford Daily or a master's student in journalism at Stanford or wherever, uh, and you're looking at this rapidly changing world of journalism, what should you be doing to prepare yourself uh, not only to get into the business, but importantly, to make a living in the business? Um, well, I'll give you a, uh, a multifaceted answer to that. Uh, I mean, one thing, I, 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 I'm, five years ago I would have, these words would not have come out of my mouth, but one thing if you're at the um, uh, you know, university level is actually to think about graduate school. Um, it used to be that you know, a lot of us in this business had a, a kind of jaundiced view of journalism schools. Uh, the way to learn, your, learn the ropes in the business was to go to a small paper, work under some grizzled, experienced editor who would teach you how to do it and then move your way up. Um, unfortunately, all of those grizzled editors have been bought out <coughs> um, or died off. Uh, a lot of those newspapers have shut down, uh, and I think I think I take much more seriously now the role that good journalism graduate schools um, perform, uh, both in imparting the skills and as you know, serving as a way to, um, since most of them have internship programs, you know, compiling the kind of clip file that can get you a job. Um, second of all, there are still newspapers, even though we're you know when we talk about the subject, we all sound like pallbearers. But in fact, there are still newspapers. Um, they still um, uh, have. 
most of them, some room for entry-level people. Uh, you may start out not making a living, uh, but it's a foot in the door. Uh, and then finally, you know, I, I referred to all of these experiments that are underway on the web. And um, as I said, I don't think it's going to be decades before some of those begin to, uh, to get uh, purchased and developed. So it requires much more of a, uh, an adventuresome spirit and maybe less of a careerist spirit to embark on something like that. Although, you know, you and I can both name people at the Times who started out doing the print equivalent of that. Uh, I think, for example, of Amy Waldman, whom I met when I was a correspondent in our Johannesburg Bureau, and she put together a couple of strings for uh, alternative weeklies in the US, came over to cover the, uh, the first uh, real election in South Africa, and um, uh, you know, worked very hard filing freelance pieces, living on a shoestring. Uh, and I hired her to help out during the election because I'd read some of her stuff. And she ended up you know, coming to work on the Metro staff of the Times and then being a foreign correspondent at the Times. So, um, you know, for somebody with the self-confidence and, you know, the willingness to live out of a suitcase, um, you know, those op I think those options are still there. You, it may, they may be for places like Global Post instead of uh, for the more traditional newspapers, a lot of which have stopped covering the world. And, and how, how much ability do you need uh, on the web? I mean, I hear the little hiring that's going on at the New York Times are people who have journalistic skills and web skills. Is yeah. that right? Well, at least the comfort level with, with web. Um, yeah, the ability to produce is useful. It's an asset, but, I, but, it, it's, but it's not an absolute essential. And you certainly don't have to be able to write software to, to get a job in, in that world. Uh, it's more a comfort level with the pace, uh, the way stories are organized on the web. Uh, you know, it's if visual journalism is your passion, you know, you should learn video as well as, um, you know, print photography. Um, it, it doesn't, you don't need an engineering degree is what I'm saying. But yes, there are, there are lots of skills that are either technical or quasi-technical that are used, that are, make you more marketable. Right, okay. Uh, I would ask those who are uh, gonna ask questions uh, to please keep them short and make them questions and not uh, speeches. This gentleman here. Thank you very much for your remarks, Bill. Uh, are you meeting with Google while you're here or are you meeting with other Silicon Valley leaders? Uh, not on this trip, but we've had a, an ongoing uh, conversation with Google at a number of levels, including uh, with Eric Schmidt, who is uh, a fan of the Times uh, and has, has been back to talk to us on a number of occasions. You know, with him, the conversations have been more kind of global and conceptual, um, but we have um, various individuals who have been talking to Google people about things like uh, search engine optimization, uh, you know, the technology of aggregation, uh, various formats and future formats for advertising. Um, you know, it's, it's been informal, but, um, but I think we've had a pretty, um, you know, friendly, mutually respectful relationship. This gentleman. Uh, Bill, the New York Times needs Helen Keller. In 1999, I was one of those who witnessed the dismantling of the black and white printing plant of the New York Times. 
It took us 124 containers to ship them to the Philippines. The next life of New York Times actually started in 1999. Please go to the Philippines. <laughs> okay, the next okay, one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Please relay to them. We enjoyed. Not only are those presses, no, this is a building that used to be the Times building on 43rd Street, which in the basement had printing presses along with other presses elsewhere. Uh, and those presses were dismantled and sold to the Philippines, as the gentleman correctly observes. Um, and subsequent to that, the whole building was sold, and we moved a couple blocks away. We, we have many questioners one, and, one and little time. Yeah, I, okay. The New York Times printing plant was supposed to be dismantled for $3 million. Mm -hmm. The Philippines bought it at $9 million. They're all now functioning in the Philippines, it's called Manila Bulletin. Please go there. Your next life is there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Okay. I'm going to attempt to paraphrase what I took away a bit from the speech. So if that's incorrect, please course correct that. And then I have a follow-on question. So my takeaway is that the channel, because the channels are fundamentally transforming the economics, you know, the digital channels and the sense that information wants to be free, what I heard you say is that the the business models will change, and you haven't quite figured out what that will look like, but if there's value being delivered, you're confident that there will be some survivors. So is, is that sort of a correct? And that's, so, pretty, that's pretty good. We could have saved people 45 minutes. <laughs> 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 Next time I come out here, I'll just email you my speech in advance, and you can, we can boil it down to talking points and have more time for questions. The following question to that would be, um, do you also believe that there's demographic changes that have been happening in our country with respect to education levels and um, cultural changes um, that are also driving the, the need for a different type of news? Or maybe there's less of an appetite for the deep investigative reporting or less. I just wanted to toss that out as another possible driver for the quote unquote death of the daily newspaper and get your reaction to that. Yeah. Um Microphone is not working. I generally tend to think okay. that things are more complicated than they seem initially. And, that, and I know this is not what you're saying, but there, you know, there is a sort of argument that boils down to younger people are stupider than we were. Uh, you know, and therefore, they don't read. And they're going to grow up illiterate and ill-informed. And you know, that way lies perdition. I, actually, I don't, um, you know, from observation of young people who work for me, and for that matter, for my own kids, I don't think young people are stupider than I was at that age. In some respects, they're a lot smarter. Um, you know, I do think um, attention spans have been whittled down to some extent um, by, you know, I mean, the, 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 I'm not a scientist, but I would imagine that the, the move from books to Twitter has been mirrored by some sort of corresponding um, change in the way, uh, pe how patient people are with absorbing information. That's a factor. I think there's a sociological impact, something we had lunch with a bunch of students, uh, of editors from the Daily, and we were talking a, a bit about, about this. Um, uh, you know, I think that, um, how do I say this without sounding like an old fart? That, there, that there, was, there was a day when there was a large shared diet of what I call you know, straight journalism, uh, you know, impartial reporting, your network TV shows, your newspapers, your news weeklies, radio news. 
and there was a comparatively small diet of um, uh, opinion. I mean, you know, forcefully expressed opinion. Uh, there was always opinion, but it, it didn't sort of overwhelm the, the other stuff. Um, and I think more and more the, the um, you know, highly partisan, highly opinionated media content has overwhelmed the other stuff to the, to the point where it's polarized us some as, as a country. Um, it's not the only thing that's polarized us, but you know, starting with maybe with cable news um, uh, and moving on to the internet, you know, it's become more and more possible to feel like a well-informed citizen without ever encountering an opinion that contradicts your own prejudices, uh, which I think is you know, not a good thing for the, for the society. Um, that, that, I don't know that that, that, that supplies uh, a market for good journalism, but it certainly helps uh, underscore the need for it. Your talk kind of brought to mind uh, other industries going through the same sort of thing that you are, the, the music industry, broadcast television, trying to find new ways to get people to pay for, uh, for, for their content uh, that differ from the ways people used to get their content. They may be a little bit ahead of the newspaper industry in terms of, after some fits and starts, figuring out ways to charge people in incremental steps to, to get the content. Anything you can learn from those in industries, both in terms of what looks promising and what to avoid? We're certainly studying them. Um, that, you know, there are uh, the, those committees that I referred to that are examining all the various options for different ways to pay I mean, uh, and, and are looking at what the precedents are, looking very closely, of course, at, the, at what's happened with um, iTunes and the music industry, what's happened with Hulu and television and, and movies and things. Um, there are some differences that superficially seem large. I mean, when you uh, download um, a song from iTunes, you keep it, share it, listen to it over and over again. When you download a newspaper, you probably don't. You know, it's a, it's a one-time experience. On the other hand, you know, I paid 30 bucks to download the last season of The Shield, and I'm not going to watch that more than once, so maybe the, maybe the difference isn't quite so great as it seems on the surface. But yes, a lot, I mean, all media industries, uh, you know, have to one degree or another been touched by the same phenomenon. We're all scrambling. I'm not sure that they're all ahead of us in terms of feeling the consequences, but they're all sort of, you know, book publishing is another one. They're all aware that, that we're in the same boat. Gentleman here. Well, this question is asked in the spirit of Mr. Loki and his introduction of the fax machine. Is there a place on the internet where one can get opinions and comments about the market life cycle of every product, including newspapers? Is there somebody who studies the, the buyers, the sellers, the end users, the end applications, so that one can predict where things are going to change? Um, probably, but I don't know who that person is, and uh, you know, and I probably we I would be with you all the way up to the predicting portion, where I think you want to be a little careful. Do you know such a website? <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, indefatigable Harry Press. Mr. Keller, why does does it <laughs> knock it off? 
Why does the Times devote pages two, three, four, and five to what essentially is an index and could be used just as easily for news? <laughs> I have a long answer to that question and a short answer. Um, the short answer is we're doing away with it. <laughs> we, uh, I mean, there. There was a lot of thought that went into it, and it, and it had a rationale, but the, honestly, the reaction of readers has been that they did not embrace it particularly, and we'd be better off using the space, and what we're gonna start doing is jumping stories from the front page into that space. There'll be some kind of an index so that you can find you know, the, the crossword puzzle and the obituaries, but. Um, great idea, Harry. A, a great idea, right. <laughs> Rich? Um, we're now um, uh, nearly 15 years um, from the launch of a lot of the uh, first wave of online newspapers, um, and yet I still have a hard time thinking of any newspaper that has hired as its top editor uh, someone who uh, made their bones, as it were, online. Uh, why has it taken so long for print newspapers to embrace the web in that way um, and when will we see, uh, we've seen a lot of the newspaper DNA transferred to the web, when will we start to see more web DNA transferred to print newspapers? Yeah, that's a, a really good question, and I mean, the short answer is that newspapers are, like most big institutions, and especially institutions that live in a sort of monopolistic environment, conservative and complacent at their core, uh, and, you know, the. The newspapers were generally, almost without exception, um, slow to recognize both the potential of the web and the, uh, you know, and the way it was going to change the culture of, of the way they do business. I, I, I like to think we were a little ahead of some of them in terms of integrating the newsroom, um, uh, you know, and, um, but you know, we were, it took us a while to catch on to it too. Um, I don't think we're that far from the day when uh, you know, the, the person holding my job or the comparable job at another major newspaper will be somebody who, as you said, made his bones on the digital side. Um, but, you know, even at, but at the New York Times, the, the two of them, even though it's 15 years since, since people began putting newspapers on the web, and in those days it was literally putting a newspaper on the web or once a day, uh, it's been at the New York Times four years since we really were all, all thought, thought of ourselves organizationally as one place and where you know, the, it even became conceivable that a person would move from one part of the newsroom to the other. Um, there is now, uh, and as I said, we're, we were ahead of most places on, in integrating. Um, we do now have a, a considerable degree of mobility back and forth. Uh, it's more junior editors, it's reporters who decide to become producers, it's photographers who decide to become videographers. Um, uh, um, but I, you know, I think that day is not far off. I think, I think the, the, the digital DNA is already evident uh, on our website. It's just not evident at the top of our organizational chart. Thank you. We have uh, three people to ask questions and that will bring this proceeding to a conclusion. So why don't we go to you first? Yeah, thanks. Um, I was just wondering, kind of building on that last point, I mean, how has your job shifted from worrying about pure journalistic issues, which stories should be on the front page, that kind of stuff, to all the business side of things that normally 
journalists don't care about. I mean, that we're told that that's not their problem. And how does that make you feel about those shifts that have happened and what your role is? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, this is not, I, I did not get into the, to the newspaper business to be, uh, you know, to be involved in the business. I got into it to be a reporter, and, and that's what I uh, have always loved. Um, and I, mean, I was telling one of the reporters for The Daily, you know, earlier, um, that, you know, it used to be we, my, the, the person in my job um, had a budget once a year, uh, and you know that that was a period of negotiation, and you dealt with the business side a lot. And the rest of the time, it was mostly, you know, a casual conversation. You would get together when you were going to launch a new section. You know, you there, we have a wall between the business and the and the newsroom, but you'd talk over that wall about, you know, the design of a, the, the, a style section or a new magazine, things like that. And that was kind of it. You know, gradually it's gotten to the point where it feels like I have a budget every week, uh, and it, the, and this week's budget is never larger than last week's <laughs> budget somehow or other, and uh, and you know probably more than half of my time is consumed with things that are not strictly speaking journalism, um, uh, and people who got into this game for the same reasons I did come up to me in the newsroom. You know, and kind of pat me on the back and sympathize with me, and they you know ask how are you, you know, in that voice that you use for people who've just been through a messy divorce and, <coughs> or or just got out of rehab, you know. <coughs> um, uh, but the fact is, it, you know, first of all, I do make an F, make a, a point of reserving time during the week to actually work on journalism. I go to our news meetings every day. I spend a lot of time brainstorming on things like the financial meltdown and. Um, you know, the uh, war in Afghanistan, issues like that. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking to editors about um, deploying reporters, promoting reporters, which is also a, a, you know, a kind of involvement in the journalism. And, I've, and the rest of the stuff is not all, you know, sort of um, miserable penny pinching. There is, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that, one of the things I, that has always appealed to me about journalism is the figuring out aspect of it. You go to country X that's in the middle of a crisis and you spend time and you talk to people and you're trying to figure out what's really important about what's going on there and then you figure out how to explain it. And what's going on in our industry is kind of that sort of puzzle. So I do, I do find it actually pretty stimulating. Marianne? But thanks for asking. I'm assuming that the New York Times on the web gets a much larger percentage of global readership than the print uh, issue does. Yes, uh, does and that that's true, although you know, we own the International Herald Tribune. Yes. Uh, uh, so you know, we do get a considerable print readership that way. But yes, I think the, the, the Times website is our main window for the out, to the outside world, from the which, outside which world. Which leads to my question, does that affect uh, your news coverage or how you plan your news coverage? What types of stories you carry, how you handle them? Uh, I would say only at the margins. Um, uh, 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 we're certainly conscious of it, uh, and I'll give you a few examples. I mean, it does not, you know, when I when I sit down in the page one meeting and we're making up the front page of the paper, I'm not thinking, you know, we have uh, a lot of readers in India. We should put this India story on the front page for them. Um, 
but we have done a couple of things. Just uh, the beginning of this week, we launched a new global homepage on the website, which is essentially the old International Herald Tribune website with some modifications. And so you now have the option, uh, if you are, we can do this from the US too, but if you are a, a, a user of the Times website in uh, China or India or France, uh, you can opt to make your, home, your default homepage the global page, which is put together by an editor who's thinking about you know, the, the, an international audience rather than a domestic audience. It's mostly similar stories, but the choices of what goes at the top of the website are different. Uh, and there are some things, you know, like the, the sports uh, is, you know, is more heavily soccer oriented than baseball or football, American football oriented. So that's one thing that we've done. Um, we've also talked a bit about uh, foreign language, you know, making things available in a foreign language. Uh, you know, the, the Guardian newspaper in London has begun, uh, they set up a website in China and every day, they don't translate the paper into, into Mandarin, but they translate four or five articles every day into Mandarin and post them on this website. And not necessarily articles about China, just, you know, interesting stuff so that a Chinese reader can access them. We've talked about doing something of that sort. Um, and one thing that I, I alluded to very briefly in the talk um, uh, that actually was, was the brainstorm of um, uh, a, a reporter in Moscow who, who um, was doing a series last year on Russia under Putin and the kind of the, the reassertion of state control in Russia and decided to um, take each of those articles as he wrote them. And before we printed them, before they went up on our website, he, he had those articles translated into Russian and posted on the most popular Russian blog site so that Russian bloggers could have at them. And we got hundreds and hundreds of comments from Russian bloggers. We then went through those, picked many of the most interesting, translated them back into English. And then when we put up our story, we had this whole repository on the website of, you know, here's how ordinary Russians view this. I saw that. So, so that, I mean, and we've applauded those kinds of experiments in the hope that more of them will materialize. Thanks. So given that your budget goes down every week, if you were making <laughs> the Times select decision today, would it be different? Um, uh, just for the just for the sake of the record, I didn't get to make the Times Select decision to start it or to stop it, although I did have, you know, I, I, was a, I had a seat at the table where both of those were decided. Um, and uh, uh, I supported the decision to start Times Select as long as the understanding was that it was an experiment. Uh, and I supported the decision to stop doing Times Select uh, because I thought um, the data was pretty persuasive that we could make more money uh, with advertising uh, with, by allowing the volume to grow astronomically and then selling ads against that site. And particularly one of the, you know, not to get too um, microscopic in the details, but one of the things that was included in um, Time Select was our archive, uh, which was, um, there was some real problems with having that behind a paywall. Because one of the things that we think uh, holds a lot of potential for generating revenue on the web is topics pages, which are these kind of living, you know, news articles. They're, they're like news equivalent of Wikipedia without the whole kind of crowdsourcing 
thing. Um, they've proven to be very popular. Uh, we've put up a lot, we don't have as many as there are Wikipedia entries, but we have a lot of them. Uh, they pop up high on search engines, you can sell ads against them. We've considered the possibility of charging for them in the future. You can't build those without access to the archive. So Time Select was kind of retarding our ability to do certain things that we wanted to do. So, you know, I, th I thought that it's, I think both of those decisions made sense, and I was, you know, heartened that the people who were such champions of Time Select at the outset didn't get so locked into it that they prevented its demise. Um, that said, it's entirely possible that what will emerge from this process is something that looks a little like Time Select. I mean, I doubt that it would just be the opinion columnists put behind a paywall, but we may end up with some, you know, a lot of stuff that's free and some stuff that's not. Thank you. Before we uh, bring this uh, proceeding to an end, those of you who are going to the dedication of the Daily Building, which follows immediately after this, and not, are not sure where it is. It's this way across White Plaza, uh, in the back side of the Old Union. Um, if you go around the right side of the Old Union, you can't miss it. So let me again thank you, Bill, for coming today. You're welcome. Really For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.